0: Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of Synthesis Spotlight. I'm Kira, and today I'm here with Coleman Friel, a junior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who was recently published in last semester's issue of Harvard Synthesis. Today we'll be discussing his paper on Edward Jenner's role as a clinical researcher. Thank you so much for joining us today and let's get started. Hi Coleman, it's so nice to meet you. My first question is, what are your current research interests?
1: Yeah, so I've been here for a while now. um, Since 2018, I'm in the OBGYN lab in Meritor Hospital at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we really focus on cardiovascular disease in children from complicated pregnancies. Uh, Right now, I'm specializing in cytokines and how the the role of cytokines affect development of cardiovascular disease in children from preeclampsia. But we're still in the early phase of that project, and we hope to have a more finalized product uh, come spring. Wow,
0: that's so cool. How did you learn about this topic?
1: I I enrolled in a program called URS, which is the Undergraduate Research Scholars at UW, Um, and they they kind of pair you with the laboratory, and so I I felt out a few different options, and this is the one that just really seemed to click with me, Uh, and that's basically how I came about it. Um, I've been into research for a long time, and so I knew that I wanted to do some scientific research in college.
0: That's fascinating. Now to pivot towards a more history of science-related question. Are your scientific research interests in any way related to history of science? yeah so
1: I, I try to connect them as much as i can um i would say that they are pretty distinct uh what what i do right now is is very stem focused um it, it's not really uh so much based in uh history of science much uh, That being said whenever i write grant proposals or I, I submit a paper for publication i do try to tie it back to the the larger um picture uh trying to bring in some of the history of the diseases we're looking at trying to bring in some of the largest societal Issues with some of the diseases. Uh, so while they are very distinct, I think there is ways to kind of tie the two different fields together. Um, most of my research in the history of science has been entirely separate from this lab, though, and uh, very tied to my coursework.
0: Ah, okay. So how did you get interested in history of science? Is there a history of science major or school, or is it sort of a niche within another major?
1: Actually, I, I don't major in history of science at all. I, I got involved because part of my biology major requirements were to take a humanities course uh, and so i enrolled in what's called the historian's craft um, because i thought it sounded interesting because we were going to focus on research techniques within uh, history and then i kind of specialized that more to my interests uh, and so i brought in some medicine and some biology uh, and that's kind of how i got involved with the history of science i know that uw does have some focus on the history of science but i don't know if we actually have a separate major for, for history of science. I think it's still uh, lumped in with history.
0: Okay, so are you majoring in public health or one of the biologies?
1: Yeah, right now I, I'm pursuing just plain old biology, but then I have certificates in leadership and global health and certificates are, are basically our equivalent of a, a minor.
0: Wow, that's so unique. So how did you find out about synthesis if you don't have a history of science major?
1: It took some digging. <laughs> I had written a paper for my course. It was this, the final paper. Um, and I thought that it had some merit to it. Uh, and so I, I went searching for journals that might be able to accommodate that paper. Uh, at UW, there is a journal for history works, but it's just plain history. Uh, it doesn't really have a history of science focus. Uh, and so I started looking for things that might be tied a little bit more to science. And I just kind of stumbled across synthesis in a web search. And I reached out, uh, I think, February of 2020. Uh, And then I started talking with folks, and and eventually I made it in uh, towards the end of the year.
0: Interesting. So this is just me hypothesizing, but through the submission to synthesis and this essay that you wrote for your class, were you trying to connect your history, science, and research interests?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I'm very interested in medicine. I hope to be a a physician scientist one day. Um, And really key to that is understanding people and how people interact. Um, scientific advice, uh, and so, so part of what I was trying to do is understand more of the, the human side of things and connect it back to how doctors have historically uh, presented uh, scientific evidence, uh, how they present treatments, and, and how populations interact with that advice. Uh, and so that's that's kind of why I got involved in history of science, uh, and that's really what what stemmed think, from my work.
0: So after college, do you hope to get an MD PhD? <laughs>
1: that's that's the plan. It's definitely a long path. Um, and oftentimes, it's not quite a straight path either. Um, so ideally, I'd go into an MSTP program, a medical science training program, um, right after my undergrad. Uh, but that being said, those programs are often uh, very competitive. And so I might either do those degrees separately, or maybe I take a gap year and do an NPH, um, or gain some work experience in a clinical setting. Uh, but th- that is the goal.
0: I wish you the best of luck. So after graduate school, do you have a specific career in mind or do you hope to sort of pursue the more academic research
1: route? Most definitely. I definitely want to be involved in in academic research. Uh, I'm very interested in translational research. I hope to work with patients from bench to bedside. Um, Really what draws me to being a physician scientist uh, is the ability to develop therapeutics and then see those therapeutics all the way through Uh, you know, testing, clinical trials, uh, and then into implementation. Uh, In that way, you're kind of responsible for that product, and you get to really see how it benefits others. Uh, And and that's really what I want to do with my career.
0: That's awesome. So now let's transition a bit more towards focusing on your research paper that you submitted to Synthesis. I was wondering if you could give a brief overview of it and explain to our audience what it's about.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Edward Jenner is the father of vaccines. Um, He's widely known and widely touted as uh, a wonderful physician-scientist, and uh, his experiments with cowpox and smallpox are regarded as a profound example of clinical research. Uh, But that's not really the whole truth. Uh, Much of Jenner's work would be considered highly unethical today, Uh, and so in my work I explore the medical research culture in the 18th century and how Jenner fits into that scene.
0: Amazing. So what inspired you to write about this topic?
1: Yeah, um, so there were a few things um, in that history course that I took. uh, We discussed Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Uh, She famously traveled to the Ottoman Empire and learned about variolation, uh, which is similar to vaccination, but it's actually just taking uh, a small bit of live uh, smallpox virus and inserting that subcutaneously. And she brought that back and that was standard practice in the 18th century for a while. Um, but it certainly wasn't as effective as vaccination. It did have lots of problems. You could still spread smallpox. And so I had known about Edward Jenner already. I knew that he invented the vaccine. I really wanted to learn about what was in between, the, between the introduction of variolation and the invention of the vaccine. So I really looked at that connection. I looked into how Jenner uh, developed his vaccine and you know how he stumbled up, across cowpox. Uh, and from that kind of through this exploration of his uh, trials in his clinical research practice um, and in the end uh, it, there was a final paper that we had that was to explore the identity of an 18th century uh, figure um, and in that that uh, setting i just i looked at edward jenner uh, and compared him to the rest of the scientific community
0: great topic choice so i remember reading within your paper that edward jenner didn't accept money for his scientific practices and I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit about whether or not that was common within the scientific community or specific to Jenner.
1: Yeah, I think the main reason he didn't seek out money uh, was because his vaccine wasn't welcomed at the time. Uh, when he first introduced it, it was disputed. Uh, he had issues with the larger scientific community. Uh, he had issue with the clergy, which were two very powerful institutions at the time, um, and so the people were, were pretty unwilling to get a vaccine. Uh, and so, in, in in an effort to encourage more people to get a vaccine, I think he offered them at no cost just to prove that his uh, research was valid and that his uh, vaccine was efficacious. Uh, later, that, that was proven true. Um, and in the uh, 1840s and 1850s, there were a series of acts passed that uh, actually mandated vaccines in Europe. Uh, but at the time, uh, there was lots of vaccine skepticism, much like we see today.
0: Do you notice any similarity between the backlash Jenner received for his vaccines of the past and the backlash that vaccines are receiving today?
1: Yeah, I think we have this tendency with clinical research to see it as unproven. Uh, if we look at today's uh, development of mRNA vaccines, uh, there was kind of a fast tracking uh, with FDA approval. Uh, and people see that as, as kind of a rushing of a vaccine to market, even though really what it is is cutting rates. Um, if we look back at Jenner's vaccine, uh, many of the scientific methods were not common practice. Uh, he actually did a pretty good job of setting up uh, controls um, and then separate distinct trials. Uh, but most of the, the research community didn't go about that process. Or they were unfamiliar with that technique. And so we're, we're pretty,
0: uh, pretty against
1: doing things that we're not familiar with. Um, and so today, that may be we are unsure of these clinical trials that seem like the results may not be equally valid. Uh, then it was, this is an entirely new concept. Um, I think one of the biggest parallels we can draw is back then uh, when we were taking cowpox and using that as the basis of the uh, smallpox vaccine, people thought that you would sprout a cow head from your site of the injection. Uh, today, uh, it's been fully disproven. Uh, and I think there, there were many articles about it in the early 2000s. Uh, people thought that vaccinations might induce autism uh, which is just not true at all uh, there's no scientific basis for it uh, but there's always this fear of introduction of external biological substances to your body and what that might uh, do to affect your health uh, and so those are, are really the biggest parallels that i see uh, between vaccine then and vaccines today and those will likely persist long into the future
0: what was the research process like when writing this paper were you able to go into the archives or were you only allowed to look at online sources? Yeah,
1: so uh, a bit of both. I would say most of my work uh, was online, Uh, just because UW has a fantastic uh, digital library. I was able to access most of the resources I need through that. One thing I did have to actually go back and get a physical copy of was Edward Jenner's uh, correspondence. Uh, And in that, it it had all of the different letters that he had ever sent sent or, or received uh, and that was a lot of my basis for looking at the characters that he interacted with uh, whether that be his mentor or some of the other members of the scientific community and i actually tried to draw some some uh character details from his subjects though it was very hard to find information from the subjects themselves um, but essentially my research process uh, was to gather all the primary sources read through those very closely so i read through all of his letters then i read his uh, primary scientific publications um, and then I looked through analysis of his character um, from modern researchers. Uh, and, and from that, I was able to kind of draw some parallels uh, between what we kind of do now, what we think of as good clinical practice and what he was doing then. And then more importantly, what we think is super unethical now and what he was doing at the time and how that fit within the scientific community then. hmm.
0: What was it like going to the archives? I unfortunately haven't been able to experience that because of COVID and all the libraries are shut down, but I'd love to hear about what it's like. Um,
1: at first, it's very fun. Uh, it's, it's really fun to see uh, primary sources. that are written in kind of an old English style. Um, it's, it's all handwritten, uh, so it's, it's very neat. Um, but one of the big parts of my project was reading every single letter. And after a while, uh, it, it can be a little bit uh, challenging. Um, sometimes there's funny language in there, sometimes it's it's really hard to discern the meaning of their text because it's not really what we're used to uh, speaking or or writing today. Um, But it's definitely an interesting experience, and it really gives you some idea of how we've evolved um, in our uh, correspondence and how we speak about different things. Some of the things that he said in his letters seemed uh, really blatant, um, there wasn't really any stepping around uh, any of the feelings he was feeling towards other members of the community. He just kind of went right out and said, hey, I really want you to publish this, which was you know, very clearly some form of uh, nepotism or asking for favoritism from his friends, um, which is obviously not something you see today, but still exists. Um, and so kind of identifying those patterns and seeing how those lead to a uh, situation today can be really revealing when we look at members of the scientific community and how some groups get ahead more than others.
0: Was that characteristic commonplace for all scientists during that time period or was it specific to Edward Jenner?
1: Uh, It really did seem to be commonplace. Uh, It it seems that your stature as a scientist and your ability to get scientific training uh, was very based in who you knew. Um, One of the the main examples that I found and I I noted in my paper uh, was his publication in the Royal Society. he was not a well-renowned scientist at the time, but he did know someone that worked with the Royal Society, a friend of his mentor. Um, and he reached out to them to kind of uh, show off his work and gain favor so that his uh, his work would be accepted for publication, uh, which is not something you do today. Uh, there's a very regimented peer review process, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, people with big names uh, don't get special treatment. Um, And so that's something that I think it's really important to evaluate uh, so that we can grow as a community um, and become uh, a little bit better suited for allowing everyone a place in science.
0: Mm. During that time period, was there only one publisher of scientific papers that was owned by the government or were there other independent publishers?
1: Uh, So much like today, there were many different journals uh, and many different communities that uh, published scientific work. The the one uh, of note here was the Royal Society. That's where Jenner submitted lots of his work. Um, but that being said, uh, the government, I'm sure, did contract uh, for some things. In fact, they worked very closely with the Royal Society to kind of build some of the things for the, the British Empire. Um, but publication was very based in who you knew, um, which is very different from today.
0: Interesting. So when did you write this paper? Was it before or after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic? And if it was after, did you have trouble accessing primary sources?
1: So I actually, I wrote this before I knew about the COVID pandemic. Uh, I started writing this uh, fall of 2019 and I finished a complete draft um, in early December. and did my revision throughout December, Uh, submitted for publication in February. Uh, February 10th, I believe, which is three weeks after the first COVID-19 case in the US. So at the time, I, I didn't really think uh, that this would have much relevance in the coming year, uh, but it, it did. Um, I think that there are lots of parallels between uh, kind of the pandemic aspect of smallpox and the the vaccination campaign that Dinner ran and that we are running correctly. Um, when it was accepted in December of 2020, Uh, I was ecstatic because I thought that the vaccination efforts uh, that Jenner was undergoing at the time uh, would be very similar to what we would be uh, doing in the near future uh, with the development of the mRNA vaccines. Uh, And so I I was very excited about that.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's really coincidental that you wrote a paper about vaccines and now we're experiencing a pandemic where vaccines are a huge concern.
1: Yeah, I wish I could say I planned it out, but I it, it was not planned. I think it just happened to be relevant. Um, and I, I hope that the folks that, that read this article can kind of draw some of those parallels to the pandemic then being smallpox uh, pandemic and the pandemic now uh, with COVID-19.
0: Wow, and I remember earlier in our interview, you said that you were getting a certificate in public health and leadership. And I was wondering if you've ever had to study pandemics within those two certificates?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as part of the global health certificate uh, uh, courses, uh, we have very uh, public health focused uh, material uh, in that we we have focused a bit on pandemics, uh, mostly smallpox actually, because smallpox was a a great example of actually working towards the goal um, multinationally to eradicate uh, what is a a devastating disease. and uh, we focused on some epidemics as well, uh, like the Ebola epidemic, for example. Um, but uh, I think that the larger things that we focused on is just how to convey messages to the public uh, and how to best uh, protect the public health.
0: Mm. Did Jenner employ any of those and try to inform the public about public health?
1: Yeah, uh, he certainly took steps towards that. Um, but you know, as kind of a, a niche scientific figure, um he did what most scientists would do and he he sought to go through um kind of research in scientific circles before uh, contacting the public Uh, and so he he did that uh, by trying to publish his paper uh, which took him many years to actually uh, get published in the royal society Uh, he did that by contacting officials in the the british empire Uh, he did that by contacting officials in scientific communities Uh, unfortunately because of the skepticism with his vaccine Uh, He didn't get a lot of support at the time, Uh, but a a page did turn eventually in the the kind of um, mid-1800s when they did start to see the the value of the vaccine, Um, and they actually mandated these vaccines throughout Europe, Uh, and that uh, severely uh, hindered the spread of smallpox. Um, We actually saw that some of this happened in the American colonies, too. Uh, They actually adopted the vaccine before uh, the rest of Europe. Um, And that was one of the things that you could say kind of helped them in their fight for independence was having this new tool um, to to, uh, better protect the public health. Uh, But Jenner himself um, was not great at actually reaching out to the public um, at the time, but he did do his best by offering free vaccines. Um, He traveled around to offer them. He also had clinics set up outside of his home.
0: So in the 1800s, whenever vaccines had begun to be taken more seriously, did they use Edward Jenner's vaccine or a variation of it?
1: Uh, so his vaccine had many iterations. The, the issue with his vaccine is it's not like a vaccine we think of today. Um, the, the smallpox vaccine that he generated uh, was from cowpox, which is a separate disease that affects cattle. Uh, but because the viruses are very similar, um, he was able to a- administer live cowpox, and that essentially provided a, a protective immunity against smallpox. Uh, so there wasn't really like one strain of a vaccine that was mass produced. He would essentially go out and collect, um, kind of scrape off some pustules of, of cowpox, and then he administered those. Um, it wasn't until much, much later, uh, pro- probably like the 1900s, that we actually de- began developing. Uh, smallpox vaccines in a more controlled fashion. Um, at the time, it, it was it was very much what cow you could find.
0: Wow. So in a sense, could this be sort of considered a coincidence since Jenner didn't entirely know that these were two separate viruses?
1: Uh, it was very observational. Um, he had noticed that milkmaids uh, that got infected with cowpox uh, had a protective uh, effect against smallpox. Uh, And since the cowpox infection is far less severe than smallpox, um, he kind of saw that as an opportunity to give an immunity to those um, that could potentially be infected with smallpox. Um, So he he really spent lots of time cataloging uh, who was and wasn't infected with smallpox and what their professions were um, and their history with other diseases.
0: So do you hope to continue this research with vaccines and Edward Jenner in the future, or do you have other interests that you hope to explore?
1: Yeah, um, I would love to continue it. I think right now is an excellent example of a time in which we're going to focus a lot on vaccines, and there will be new and continuing issues with how people can use the vaccine. Um, And so really studying those effects are, are going to give us key insights into how we Uh, introduce these protective measures in the future. Uh, I think, looking back at Edward Jenner, we probably have enough information to uh, look towards the future, Uh, but we should definitely reference uh, his work with the initial introduction of vaccines whenever we're thinking about uh, putting something new to the public.
0: So would you want to do this research in more of a scientific or historical context?
1: Sure. Um, I try to bring both into all research. Um, In my paper in synthesis, uh, I tried to bring in lots of facts and figures because in a in a STEM field, that's often what we focus on. Um, And so I think the the best way to present that information to include the most amount of people um, is to really offer a narrative perspective. um, And, uh, you know, scientific raw facts. Um, And so continuing in the future, I think it's incredibly important that we bring some of that humanity Uh, by offering case studies uh, and and kind of storytelling.
0: Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Well, that was the last of my questions. So I wanna thank you so much for being here and being willing to share your insight about history of science and your current research. And I hope to stay in touch. Thank you, have a good day. And that's it. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, follow us on Instagram at synthesisjournal, and keep an eye out for the upcoming synthesis publication on our website. Until next time, this was Synthesis Spotlight.